0: day that I have long dreaded is here as we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I think you'll see why I say it is a day that I have not looked forward to. As we look forward to, or as we look at now, David's sin. David is going to sin quite extraordinarily. But in 1 Samuel chapter 11 or 2 Samuel I'm sorry 2 Samuel chapter 11 we will see we won't look at the whole chapter this morning because there's just so much here. I want to just this morning focus on the first 5 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 11. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> And uh, if you're physically able to do so, I do want to invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon, and besieged Rabah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in the evening that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanliness. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Let's pray. Father, may you help us uh, as we go to uh, the text and as we look at a very uh, difficult and troubling passage this morning. God, our prayer is that ultimately it pushes us to see Christ and how Christ is better than even the greatest king on the earth. We praise you for your grace and your mercy. We praise you for your kindness and your love, and even your forgiveness, your forgiveness that is ultimately available to us in Christ. And we praise you for this, and we thank you for this, and we ask now your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I think you can be seated. Perhaps one of the most notorious names in all of uh, Nazi Germany was a man by the name of Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was one of the Nazi architects of the Holocaust who, after World War II, managed to escape the Allies. And he managed to flee to South America, where he began to establish himself. And he was not caught until 1960, where he was ultimately taken back to Israel for a trial. He was tried, found guilty, and ultimately executed. But there was a very interesting incident that occurred during this trial. They had to find witnesses who saw him commit the terrible crimes against humanity that he was charged with, and so they needed to find people who saw him participate in atrocities at the Nazi death camps. One of the material witnesses was a man named, um, and I'm going to probably butcher his name, but um, Yael Denuer, and when he came in to testify, he saw Eichmann in the glass booth and it was a broadly broadcast and broadly broadly seen uh, that he immediately broke down, fell to the ground, and began weeping uncontrollably. There was, of course, a, a pandemonium, and the judge was hammering, calling for order. It was apparently a very dramatic moment. Sometimes later, sometime later, an interviewer, uh, I think it was Mike Wallace actually, uh, who was at, at 60 Minutes at the time, who later interviewed the the, the the eyewitness and he would ask him, was it because of those painful memories that you fell down upon the ground and began to control and uh, uncontrollably weep? Shockingly, he said, no. When asked why, He actually did this to the shock, I think, of almost everyone. He said this. He said that he was overcome by the realization that Eichmann was not a demon, but was an ordinary human being. He went on to say, I was afraid, not for Eichmann, but for myself, because I saw that I am capable of doing this exactly like him. The reality is that there are real monsters in the world, and they are humans, but we have looked into the eyes of our enemies, and they are us. And we must understand this morning as we come to the the text of 2 Samuel chapter 11, this Probably only second to the book of Deuteronomy or Judges and the the treatment of the priest's concubine and her treatment and, and everything that went there. This is probably only the second, at least in my opinion, most trouble, one of the most troubling passages, the second most troubling passage in all of Scripture. So let me tell you how we got here, for those of you who may not know. In chapter 11, we do see ultimately. Uh, a fall, a terrible, horrendous fall of a righteous man, a righteous king, a good king to this point, it seems. And we ask ourselves, how could this have happened? He seemed like such a good king, right? And I think, I think this is a question that we just don't ask just about David at this moment, but we ask about everyone when someone falls. We say, well, how could it have happened? How could that have been? How could they have done that? What were they thinking We have seen David as a man whose heart was directed towards the worship of God. We have seen David with great kindness to Mephibosheth wanting to bless him. We've seen him with great kindness trying to be kind to the children of Ammon only to to be ridiculed and mocked and and ultimately um, destroying them because of their wickedness. How can someone seemingly just fall into selfishness deceitfulness and murderous action particularly all at once well the answer is neither David nor we fall into these actions all at once they are small steps that ultimately lead to giant falls why well we would say well David is a partaker of God's grace Well, certainly he was certainly he is But as Cain was told in the book of Genesis, sin is crouching at your door and it seeks to master you. Sin is always lurking. And so that's why I have ultimately titled this sermon, Rebellion and Treason. Because what David does is rebellious and treasonous against the promises and the faithfulness of God. And I think in this, David does stand as a warning. He stands as a warning always, because Satan is always seeking to tempt us. Satan is always seeking to turn us even in small seemingly insignificant ways to turn away from God. He is relentless in his attacks. And so the answer to the answer to how how did I end up here because I ended up where I didn't want to be, the answer is by small tiny steps. You led the way to your own fall, to my own fall. And so to the run-up to the fall, I think, is, is important for us to see. Because we would say from all external purposes that David was a good man. He was a good king. He had, after all, put up with Saul and his murderous plots and plans and, and all kinds of slanderous things have been said about him. And now here we are. But I think there's a run-up to the fall that we have to see here. And I think it's one of the most glaring ones to begin with, to be honest with you. And that is simply this, David perverted God's design for marriage. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, David had multiple, multiple wives. Now, they don't get a lot of play, but they did. 1 Samuel 25, 2 Samuel 3, 2 through 5, right? We are told that David has begun amassing to himself Lots of wives, and even as, as the, the writer in, um, I believe it's in uh, 1 Chronicle, Chronicles tells us, that not only did he have wives, multiple wives, I think around 13, 13 wives or more, he, ulti- he ultimately also had an unnumbered amount of concubines. David began to pervert God's design for marriage from a very early stage. I think we also see, not even before that, because, I mean, Genesis 1, Deuteronomy 17 is very clear about the God's design for marriage. And David, even David, in demanding his wife, Michael, David does not seem to care one iota about her. His love for her has long since gone. She's already married to someone else she has, she, has, she has no love for him. He has no love for her. So why does David want her and keep her? Well, David's ambi- ambition at that point seems to be solely motivated by political ambition. I would also say David, all, ultimately, in 2 Samuel 3, David allowed Joab, his own cousin, to get away with murder and didn't say a word. David... As I said, added, added more and more wives. David would earlier, or David would also presumptuously remove the Ark of the Covenant without seeking how to properly do that, ultimately costing Uzziah, or uh, Uzzah, his life. And his political and military successes, I think you see, begin to make him believe his own hype. Because ultimately, what is David doing when we find him in Second Samuel chapter 11? He's not leading the army. We say, well, now, David was old. No, no, David wasn't. David was probably a little less than 50 years old, maybe in his late 40s at this point. David was was still healthy enough and vigorous enough to fight and to lead the, the army as he was supposed to. But what does he do? He gives the leadership of the army to his general, Joab. And instead of leading the army, he decides to sit back and rest on his bed. And the reason why we find we say, well, it was early in the evening. Well, yes, but the understanding here, you need to understand that the word here for evening is literally means right after sundown. So the question is, David, what were you doing in the bed? David, what what exactly were you doing? And why were you up on the roof? And why were you not leading the army? Why were you not fighting? Why were you not being the man that God called you to be? But there's something else in this fall that I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things we need to see and we need to understand. One is that David did not just betray his, his nation. He didn't just betray the Lord. He also betrays his very friends. You so say, well, what do you mean? Well, let me ask you a question. Who was Uriah? You say, well, I don't know who Uriah was. He was the wife of Bathsheba. That's all we really know. Well, no, this is not all that we know about Uriah. If you know anything about the text of Scripture, you'll know that Uriah was, in fact, one of David's mighty men. He was numbered among what was known as the 30, David's elite bodyguard. He was among those who had pledged their lives to protect their king, and their king, had, David, had pledged his life to protect them and their families, Uriah had considerable military skill and God's blessing rested upon him. And if that were not enough, on top of being fiercely loyal to David, he would have eaten alongside of David. He would have fought alongside of David. He would have watched over David in battle and David over he in war. David would have hosted both Uriah and Bathsheba at his table for feasts and he would have known clearly who they were. But not just that, Uriah, to David's shame, ultimately is a Gentile. We say, well, what do you mean? Well, how is Uriah, how is Uriah mentioned here in our text? It is said in verse 3 that he is the wife, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was not ethnically Jewish. He was, in fact, from from the descendants of Heth, who was the son of Canaan. According to Genesis 10.15 and according to Genesis 15.20, it tells us the land of the Hittites was part of the promised land given to Israel. But here's the strange thing. Uriah is a Gentile with a Hebrew name. Uriah then though he was a Gentile, was a worshiper of the God of Israel, was a servant of Yahweh. As a matter of fact, his name means either light of Yahweh or flame of Yahweh. And David will snuff out the life of a man who lives for Yahweh. But that's not all. You see, David's sin is much more incendiary than just that, although that is certainly insidious and wicked. It is also said in verse 3 that your Bathsheba... Is the daughter of Eliam. We say, well, we don't know anything about Eliam. Oh, yes, we do know. If you know Scripture, if you look at the text of Scripture, the first thing we know about Eliam is that his name means God is my nation. He was a Gilonite. He was, in fact, according to 2 Samuel 23, 34, also one of the 30 David's bodyguards. So what David does, he does not just against Uriah, one of the 30, but also Eliam, also his daughter, the daughter of a man who was one of David's 30, one of David's bodyguards. But it gets even more interesting because according to 2 Samuel 23, 34, Eliam was also the son of Ahithophel, David's counselor. And then there was Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's private counselor who came from Gilo in the highlands of Judah near Hebron. He had a reputation of being, of having, as 2 Samuel 16.23 tells us, as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God, he spoke wisdom, great wisdom. He was the father of Eliam, and therefore he was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And it appears that David's murder of Uriah and the seduction of Bathsheba is ultimately what leads Ahithophel to later betray David by joining Absalom's rebellion. And then there's a woman named Bathsheba. Who was Bathsheba? Who Who was she? Well, she was, of course, we're told, the wife of Uriah, one of David's mighty men. She would have eaten at David's table. She would have been known of David. She would have been known by David. Just because he sees her from afar off and inquires who she is does not mean he did not know her upon having been told who she is. He just simply did not recognize her from that distance. She was the daughter of Eliam, one of David's mighty men, granddaughter of Ahithophel, David's chief chief counsel. So what happened to Bathsheba? What, What happened to her? Well, we know from the text of Scripture a couple different things. First, we know that she was bathing when David saw her. Now, the interesting thing about the text is, as many of us have been led to believe, she was bathing on the rooftop, but that's not what the text says. The text says that she was bathing, and David saw her from his height advantage from the rooftops, from his rooftop. Now, she could have been bathing on the rooftop. I'm just saying the text doesn't tell us whether she was or not. It just says that he saw her from his roof. Whatever else happens here, the text is very succinct and doesn't really expand on whether she is complicit. I don't believe she was necessarily complicit, but she was, in fact. But the text never tells us, so we don't think can be dogmatic one way or the other. But we do know, according to the text, a couple of things. One, David sins for her. David sleeps with her, and she goes home, where she later finds out she is pregnant. It does not appear, based upon the text of Scripture, that she fought David's advance, right? But at the same time, we have to still ask the question, what exactly took place here? To which I don't know we can be dogmatic one way or the other. But there's one thing we can be dogmatic about. Who's to blame here? Unequivocally, 100%, God... Blames David. The scripture blames David. Nathan, the prophet, will blame David. David did this. No matter what else can be said, David saw her. David took her. Bathsheba isn't assigned blame in the text. And I think there's an ultimate reason for that, right? But it is clear, nonetheless, that David is to blame. And so what exactly was David's sin? Well, I think as we look at the text of Scripture here, David's sin was actually follows an interesting progression. I, I think it really does. It, it follows an interesting progression. In James chapter one, verse thirteen through fifteen, it actually tells us what actually happened to David. Listen to James one thirteen through fifteen. Let no one say when he is tempted, "I am tempted by God," for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt. Nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it brings forth death. And sin, when it is full, I'm sorry, brings forth sin, or births, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. This, this is what happened. This is David's plight. This is David's flight in this. You see, laziness or inattention, inattention is where it all starts. I mean, it doesn't matter if we're David or not David. So hear me clearly. Whether we're David or not David, like us, laziness or inattention is where it always starts. And David was both inattentive and lazy. David was lazy for not leading his army, and he was inattentive to his own heart that he was clearly filled with lust. And he never stopped to ask himself the question, what does God's law command of me? But sin always starts in the heart. Temptation often enters through our senses. But it starts in our hearts, right? We we hear something. We see something. We taste something. We touch something. We look at something <coughs> that we like. And here David sees Bathsheba bathing. And then from there, David moves from looking to lusting. And then he inquires, involves other people into his sin by asking them to come and look and see who she is. And the answer to David's question should, or the answer to the question that David asked, should have stopped him cold. This is Ahithophel's granddaughter, Eliam's daughter, Uriah's wife. It should have stopped him cold. But his heart is treasonous and rebellious. And before we judge David, and we should, but before we judge him too harshly, we need to ask ourselves, is not this the same way that our hearts treat us? Do our hearts not always start with seeing, hearing, tasting, or touching something that it longs for, lusts after, gives birth to sin, and then ultimately gives birth to death. Well, that's what James says. James says yes. Now, that doesn't excuse David because we all face that equal sin temptation. It doesn't excuse David. David's act is no less heinous, right, which is why people say, well, you know, you can't judge my sin because so-and-so did it too. I don't care if so-and-so did it too. You did it, right? It doesn't matter if so-and-so did it. You did it. David sent messengers, David took her, she returns home, and that's all the text really says, but sin, it brings forth consequences. A child, a cover-up, and a murder, ultimately, is what happens. Now, before you become too overwhelmed in all of this, let me say to us that all of this does and is meant to point us to Jesus, You say, well, how? How, Pastor, is this supposed to point us to Jesus? Well, let me tell you how this is supposed to point us to Jesus. Because if you remember earlier, what I said is, why is it that David faces the blame here? and God squarely puts the blame all and only on David. I think there is an ultimate reason, and it is simply this. The writer from the text of Scripture wants us to know David. David is not the fulfillment of the covenant. That God made with him back in 8. As great as David was. As wonderful as, of a man as David was. As sensitive to the heart of God as David was. David's was still a man. And he points us ultimately then. Because David could not keep the covenant. David could not keep the law. David could not do anything. But serve his own purposes. He points us to his greater son. Jesus the Messiah, who unlike David and even unlike Adam, when faced with temptation, did not yield for a moment to temptation and never for one moment sinned. Jesus did what David and Adam could not do. You see, the entire text here is, places us, excuse me, it seems to place us and uses the language of the garden. All over again. This is David partaking of the fruit. This is David in Adam eating again the fruit that was forbidden by God. And he falls and he sins. And David in his temptation and in his sin, he is disastrous. And yet he points us then to the greater son, his greater son, King Jesus, who when faced with this never for a moment flinched. In the face of sin and temptation. Ultimately David points us to Jesus. Because Jesus is the greater son of David. Who was able and is able to fulfill the covenant of King David. Or fulfilled the covenant with David. Because David was filled with weakness and sin. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. That no one could keep the law. None of us in the face of the law could keep it. But Jesus did. Jesus is the greater David. Who ultimately fulfills the covenant that God made with David. Because Jesus was not filled with the weakness and the sin that David was. He was he was able to keep the covenant that was promised because Jesus is David's greater son, the Messiah, the God man who kept and fulfilled the covenant and instituted the greater covenant, the covenant of grace, the new covenant, the new testament. And so we can rejoice in this. And so, believer, let me say this to to you. Because of Christ, we ultimately, when we do sin, can find grace in our times of struggle, and we can rest in grace, even in the times of our greatest and most tragic, rebellious sin. We can find grace and we can come to the throne of grace not because of David, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And we can come to Christ knowing that we will not be rejected but received in grace because another has kept the law on our behalf. And yet in saying that, it doesn't keep us from the call of God in his word to also fight against our sin for the glory of God. And I think in this, as we look at David, we don't look at David like, ha-ha, I'm better than you. No, no, no. We look at David and saying, oh my, this is definitely a warning, because but for the grace of God, I would fall into the same same sin. But how do we fight when we're faced with our sin? Well, I think the text of Scripture points us to a couple of different things. One, I think, unlike David, we need to constantly, continuously be feeding our minds and our hearts and our consciences with the word of God. We need to be constantly filling filling our hearts and minds and consciences with what the Bible says, with what God has already revealed to us. But I think also, Christian, let me say this. When we sin, we need to flee to God's grace and we need to be embraced by God's grace. But also, you and I need to fight to win against the battle against our sin. This can't be a half-hearted fight. This must be an all-out, hand-to-hand combat, trench warfare fight against my sin and against your sin. Not against other people's sin, but against our sin. We must fight and never give up. Sin is always crouching at our doors and seeks to destroy us. And we must guard our hearts and our minds in Christ, protecting our Our hearts and minds by the weapons and the tools God has given to us in Christ. I would say this. I I would also say this. I would say guard not just your hearts and your minds, but those of you that are married, guard your marriages by putting in the time and the energy that is necessary to build strong and healthy marriages. Don't ever let your guard down. But I would also end by just simply giving you this encouragement. Brothers and sisters, if we have and are caught in sin, Paul told us in Galatians chapter 6, we are to restore those who are caught in sin. We are to help them, we are to restore them, we are to encourage them to bear one another's burdens And so I would say to you who maybe have been caught in sin, flee to God's mercy. Know that his forgiveness is given. And once it is forgiven, there is no shame that is yours any longer to be exploited by Satan, but to be learned from and grow in. So we need to rest in God's mercy. We need to rest in God's grace. But we don't need to exploit God's mercy or God's grace. We don't need to abuse God's grace. We don't need to abuse God's mercy. We need to rather fight by the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the word of God. We need to fight against our sin. This incident that happens, and and it only gets worse from here. Like, you know, some days you'll have people say, well, how much worse can it get? Don't ever ever ask that question because it can always get worse, right? Well, that's going to be the case here. It's going. Next week we'll look and we'll see we're going to see that it gets a lot worse because David sins, he in, he enacts Joab in this treachery, he kills an innocent man, it is a mess of an ordeal, and yet I will say this, even as much as I have not looked forward to preaching this text of scripture, this text of scripture points us forward to Christ and the cross and the mercy that is ours if we will but repent and turn to Christ in grace. And so this morning, let me encourage you not to use your sin as an excuse to keep you from the Lord, not to use your sin as an excuse for why you could never be forgiven or loved or cared for or you could never give your testimony. Embrace God's grace. Be embraced by his mercy and live for the glory of God while we are empowered by his spirit to fight against our sin. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray in mercy, to um, just rest in Christ. Confess our sins when we are caught in them and flee, to the, flee to, the, to the throne of grace, not exploiting or abusing or using your grace as a reason to sin, but God, resting in it nonetheless, trusting in Christ nonetheless. We thank you that though David was weak and sinful like we, Lord Jesus, you did not flinch even for a moment in the face of temptation and sin. We praise you that ultimately it is through your sacrifice upon the cross that we are given hope and we can taste of the victory that is to come, that is ours already in Christ. So help us now. Help us to rest and trust in Christ. Help us to look to Christ. Help us to find grace in times of need. We pray this in Jesus' name.